The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Have you uh, Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Have you ever thought... <clears throat> about being involved in a high-profile case and maybe project what goes on behind the scenes. If you have, it is absolutely similar to being on a never-ending roller coaster. My guest today is recovering from such an experience from a case from a few months ago. Arizona private investigator Rich Roberts was a defense investigator during the high-profile homicide case of Prescott, Arizona stockbroker Stephen DeMocker. DeMocker was convicted of the 2008 beating of his ex-wife, Carol Kennedy. That just happened a few months ago. So, Rich is going <laughs> to discuss with us today the five years of the courtroom drama. It included all kinds of things that just are amazing. A ju- the judge died of a brain tumor. Um, one of the key deputies was terminated. Uh, there was allegations of evidence tampering conspiracy, and the original defense team, the attorneys, resigned due to a conflict of interest. Any one of those things in a case would be turn it upside down, but <laughs> this <laughs> Rich experienced all of them. He's been the lead investigator in hundreds of cases, and including numerous death penalty cases at trial, sentencing, and post-conviction. And he's here today to discuss the Democrat case, as well as provide his thoughts of managing a case with heavy media exposure. Hey, Rich. Hey, good morning. Glad to have you on the show to get, again. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's great. So, before we start getting into the case, before you came a PI, you were a journalist for a really long time. Almost 30 years. Almost 30 years. And that was in Arizona? Right, right. I was with the uh, newspaper here, uh, the Arizona Republic, for almost 25 years, and then I did television for five years. Wow. And at the uh, Arizona Republic, you were also city editor, weren't you? Right. Yes. I, was, I managed the local news operations for five of those years, and then uh, on either side of it uh, was either on the investigative team as a reporter or, and then later became the head of the investigative team. Yeah. And then you were uh, actually fairly acclaimed as being a Pulitzer Prize finalist on three different projects. <laughs> well, I don't know about acclaimed, but yes, so we, <laughs> we had the. Uh, it was uh, flattering to be finalist for uh, Pulitzer three times. Yeah, and always a bridesmaid. Always a bridesmaid, yeah. <laughs> but you got an Emmy, correct? Yeah, I got uh, three Emmys. In fact, three Emmys. Uh, yes, in television. Yeah, that was that was nice. 
Oh, that's that's great. And then uh, I guess you, because you were so involved in professional journalism, you were also um, heavily involved in the Society of Professional Journalists. Still am. Yep. Still are, and the uh, your past president of the First Amendment Coalition in Arizona. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a, a project that uh, provides legal advice on public access, open meetings law, public records laws to to journalists. Very important projects. We have to maintain those open records. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So how did you get from journalism to becoming a private investigator? Well, uh, it's kind of one of those things where after doing the same kind of thing for about 30 years, uh, kind of started thinking, is there something else? Uh, and I started looking around at what, what could I use my skills for if I uh, changed careers? And uh, the private investigations business uh, kind of c- came up, and I met a few of them, talked to them, and, and got a better idea of what they did, and and thought uh, this was something that would uh, would be interesting to try. And lot, yeah, lots but, of similarities. Yeah, there is. I mean, gather facts, tell a story. Yeah, right. Exactly. So then, so how did you get licensed? Did was your Journalism experience, did that qualify you? It did. Or did you have yeah, to and did it? it was transferable. The uh, state licensing agency in Arizona is the De- Arizona Department of Public Safety. And uh, the re- Arizona's threshold for getting a PI license is, is somewhat minimal. It requires you to have uh, uh, 3,000 hours of, uh, or 6,000 hours of full-time investigative experience, mm-hmm. the equivalent of about three years. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't define it any more than that. So, uh, so they look at it as uh, equivalent experience of investigations. And I just uh, provided copies of some of the investigative news reporting that I had done, mm-hmm. and they determined it for you know thirty years, and uh, they decided that that was an equivalent uh, amount. So, it's, they granted uh, me a license. Yeah. Well, that's the same uh, qualifications you have to have in California. Did you also have to take a, a test exam, no, too? Arizona no? does not require any mm. written tests. Uh, they don't have any requirements for CLEs. Uh, and those are probably a couple areas that I think could be improved, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with the continuing education part, that's for sure. <laughs> I think I've got on record on that one. Yeah, and there's a lot of resistance to it, as you know. Yes, there is. <laughs> it's amazing. But anyway, um, so then you got involved in licensing, and not very long after that, I mean, then uh, private investigation, not very long after that, you became the president of the Arizona Licensed Investigators Association. Right, yeah, Arizona Association of Licensed Private Investigators, ALPI. Uh, yep, yeah, I was uh, president for a few years, and uh, it's a good organization. Uh, it was really worked hard. It is a good organization, and also you're the. Are you still the editor of the Legal Investigator from the Nally? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. For the for the National Association of Legal Investigators, I do the the editor of their quarterly magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you meet those qualifications to be editor. <laughs> <laughs> My spare time. Yeah. In your spare time, yeah. Okay. So, how did you get involved in this wild case of Stephen Demacher? Yes, the the Demacher, uh case, uh, the, the homicide occurred on on uh, July second of two thousand eight, 
and uh, late in the evening, and up in Prescott, which is a, a rural community up in the mountains of uh, about an hour, two hours outside of Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, pine trees, uh, very beautiful community, uh, about a quarter of a million residents in in uh, Yavapai County is the county, and I've done cases all over the state, and uh, one of my attorney clients uh, is a guy up in Prescott that we've done a number of cases with, and and he wound up being retained to represent uh, a, a guy who was being questioned at that time. Uh, Steve DeMocker uh, was being questioned by the sheriff's office regarding the death uh, that had occurred, and he uh, asked me to, to join them early on. So I was hired within... Uh, a matter of days of the of the homicide. In fact, one mm. of the first stops I was able to make when I ran up there to uh, meet the client and talk to John, kind of get a lay of the land, uh, went to the crime scene, and there was uh, the crime scene was still relatively intact. There was still blood everywhere, so I was able to mm. go in, which is unusual in a lot of criminal defense cases to to see the crime scene uh, before it's taken up. For sure. So before DeMacher was even charged, you were there? Yeah, he wasn't actually charged until October. So the uh, homicide occurred in July, and he wasn't actually charged until October. Hmm. So I worked on, on as much as we could uh, in the early stages of it. There was a lot of unknowns. And uh, and then when he was charged and uh, they uh, sought the death penalty, the kind of the tenor of the thing kind of changed quite a bit. So... Uh, but I stayed with it. It's amazing. So, um, how did, how did you start? What did you? What kinds of things did you do first before he was uh, charged? Well, it was it was kind of uh, getting in there and understanding who all the players are. Is you know you you walk into these situations and you don't even know people's names. Uh, so I had to kind of understand the scene a bit. Uh, understand who all the who Steve was and what his current relationship. He had been recently uh, divorced uh, with uh, in 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 May, so it mm. was only uh, you know month, a little over a month that he had been actually legally divorced from her, and that was one of the reasons he uh, attention was directed so quickly to him was you know a lot of divorce situations mm-hmm. uh, and. But he'd been estranged from her for almost six years, so he'd been living apart from her and supporting her financially uh, for some six years, and they just finally got around to resolving it uh, legally and, and getting the divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was that process kind of... So I started looking at that process, knowing that that was going to be a focus of some attention. So uh, looking at the public records, uh, checking backgrounding, uh, our client backgrounding his ex-wife, uh, just to understand uh, who all these people were and what kind of records were out there about their relationship. And he was uh, he was a stockbroker, correct? Correct. Yeah, he's a, he was the former uh, dean of uh, a small private college up there called Prescott College. He was the dean up there for a number of years, and then he uh, resigned to uh, become a 
financial planner and stockbroker, uh, first for A.G. Edwards and then UBS. So he, he was, was doing very, very well. He, yeah. he was making a half million dollars a year uh, as a stockbroker in that small community. And he was very well known. He was, yeah, as, as was she. She she taught at Prescott College as well. Um, she was an artist. Uh, her pieces were on display in the galleries downtown, and uh, uh, she taught um, um, and was sort of a counselor for uh, women in substance abuse situations at a, at a therapy place there in town. And about how large a community is Prescott? Well, the, the county itself is about a quarter of a million, uh, and most of those are in the Prescott area. So the population is probably 150, something like that, uh, in, in Prescott and in, in the immediate environment. There's Prescott, Prescott Valley, and, and her home was actually outside of the, the city limits, uh, so this was a sheriff's office case. Uh, it was okay. north of, of the community. And some of the listeners may remember the real horrible tragedy of the uh, Yarnell Hill fire that killed 19 firefighters. Oh, right. Uh, right. That was the community. That was the oh, community of Prescott. And that occurred during our second trial last year. Yeah, uh, I So it, that also was kind of one of the things that, that cast a pall, as you can imagine, over the entire community. And... Um, and just two weeks before they died, that same group of hotshot firefighters uh, fought a fire that was within a mile of the house, the crime oh. scene, uh, oh where, where Carol died. And I was up there working on the case and, and helped uh, one of the attorneys had a house near there, and I helped evacuate uh, okay. people in that area uh, <laughs> while the flames were, were moving toward us. We got within 300 feet of the house when we finally oh stopped throwing things in the trucks. Rich, so we need all, to all take that a, happened during the trial, too. Excuse me. We need to take a quick break. I didn't know about this part, but we'll be right back. <laughs> a little sidelight, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today has considerable experience in handling high-profile cases, and I had no idea that he was also helped with fire evacuations and firefighting. And he just told me on the break that uh, during um, the early part of the case, the judge who ultimately died of a brain tumor collapsed in court one day, and Gritch even did CPR on the judge. Yeah, I am am one of the detectives, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, day 17 of the first trial, we uh, the judge uh, got up, kind of dismissed the jury kind of early, and everybody was kind of looking at each other, and he walked around the corner and just collapsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was pretty awful. I, Good guy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so you, uh, you, you had the Yarnell fire, and there was another fire you said that was close to the murder, right. murder house. Right, Grand Mountain. Grand Mountain. And that, were you in, actually in trial during that Yes, we part? were. That was during the second trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we had, uh, first trial occurred in 2010. So the murder was in 08. The uh, first trial was in 2010. Uh, mistried uh, to, at the end of that year. Uh, new counsel were appointed. Uh, there was a huge year-long battle over prosecutorial misconduct allegations. Uh, and we finally went back to... Uh, resume the trial. The second trial occurred in uh, last year, in 2013. And was was it a mistrial because the defense team resigned, or or is it something yes. else? Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. There was uh, uh, this whole. There was. Gosh, take the rest of your program to explain all this. But <laughs> the uh, but basically, there was uh, some allegations against our our the defendant Steve Demacher uh, that he had fabricated. Uh, some evidence, uh, and um, it was called an anonymous email that was sent to the prosecutors with an alternative theory of the case. And it turned out that uh, um, about a year after that anonymous email had arrived, uh, the, uh, it, they were able to uh, get some evidence that he had uh, arranged to have that created. And so we were in the middle of the first trial when all that happened, and they filed additional charges against him. But because the first legal team had relied on, had filed motions and and, uh, and a variety of other things had occurred in court involving that piece of evidence that Mm -hmm. then turned out to be fabricated, uh, it created this illegal conflict between them and their client. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so they felt like they could not uh, represent him and uh, so they asked to withdraw, and uh, that was litigated over a period of time, and finally uh, they were granted the motion to withdraw, and, uh, and as a result, of course, there was a mistrial. Mm-hmm. And that piece of evidence was actually uh, created by Democrat's daughter, wasn't it? 
Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, then what happened next? <laughs> well, <laughs> which time? Uh, yeah, the so the first uh, first team had to withdraw. The uh, uh, we had after the judge Darrow, the first judge, had collapsed. Uh, that was on day seventeen of the tr- first trial. We we had to take a month off while a new judge got up to speed. So he came aboard, and. Um, and then, so he stayed with it through the mistrial and then took over uh, a case uh, that also got international attention. It was called the Sweat Lodge case. It was a, a, a guru that had the sweat lodge that uh, a lot of people paid money to go in and, and uh, uh, find their uh, their inner being or something. And, and a couple of them died in the process. So he was being prosecuted, and that got carried... That story was on all the, the talk show stuff, the court TVs and all that kind of stuff. And so that judge went from one high-profile case to this other high-profile case. And when that one finally ended, he said, I've had it, I'm done, I quit, I resigned. So the, <laughs> so the judge resigned, so we wound up having to get a third judge for our case. Yeah, did that judge actually retire, or did he just get off the case? He retired. He, he retired. Said, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. uh, now you have to keep in mind uh, uh, in our case the obviously it was a high profile case in the local community so the local daily newspaper was, was covering it it was getting some attention not as much from my former newspaper down in Phoenix the Arizona Republic uh, it was getting a little bit of coverage there but the reason it, it for whatever reason it got the attention of the television news magazine programs and mm. three of them showed up. So we had ABC 2020 was there, uh, NBC Dateline was there, and CBS 48 Hours uh, was there. So in the first trial, mm. we had three television, uh, all three television major networks uh, were there covering it. Now, they weren't doing daily sh- stories or anything like that. They were anticipating mm-hmm. covering it for at the end. So they were there for the entire first trial and never aired anything. So really? they were there in 2010 and then put it in a can and waited mm-hmm. till 2013. Uh, ABC News dropped out of it in that period of time. And then uh, so 20, uh, 48 hours uh, and Dateline stayed with it in the second trial. And uh, and only recently, Dateline aired a two-hour special just uh, what a week ago. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, forty-eight hours uh, is probably going to be airing theirs uh, within a few months. And people that are interested in hearing the whole story, they could probably get uh, look up Dateline on Google and find the show. Right, that uh, two-hour special is still available on streaming video. And, w- yeah. and what did they title it? Um. Mystery on Bridal Path, I believe. Bridal okay. Path is the name of the uh, street uh, where the house was. Okay. Now, this was a case where there was only circumstantial evidence, correct? Right. Yeah, that was the uh, thing. That there was a lot of issues because of uh, uh, it, it's just being a circumstantial case, and, and uh, the murder weapon was never found, um, and there was no... DNA, fibers, hairs, anything of any kind uh, that linked our client, Steve DeMocker, to the inside of that house. There was just nothing mm-hmm. there. 
and uh, no fingerprints, anything. And there was none of her DNA. Carol Kennedy was the victim. Uh, there was none of her DNA found associated with him, not on his car, not his car, not in his home, not in his clothes. And, and this was a bludgeoning death. Uh, she was struck six, eight times, uh, mostly on the head, uh, and it was, there was a considerable amount of blood and blood spatter. So there's, it's uh, hard to imagine that anybody could have uh, committed this crime without being mm-hmm. uh, covered with, with blood spatter. Uh, it was all over the, the room. And, uh, um, and so the idea that, uh, that he could be found a short time later and, and all of his clothing seized and everything else uh, and have no blood and for him to not leave anything at the crime scene uh, was was difficult to fathom. There was some circumstantial physical evidence uh, outside of the home where they found some bicycle impressions and some uh, shoe impressions that were in close proximity that seemed to wander around in the back of this. It was kind of a ranch land mm-hmm. uh, in the back. And those uh, tire impressions were similar to a mountain bike tire that he had, and that was his alibi that he was out mountain biking. And the shoe impressions were similar to uh, a make of shoe that he used to own hmm. a few years prior. Now, his mountain bike uh, was the type of mountain bike where you use clip-in pedals. So you have shoes that have a, a, a metal, round metal knob on the bottom of them, and they lock into the, the pedals on that a mountain bike. And, uh, but the shoe impressions were nothing like that, so they were, they were mm. regular kind of running shoes. So uh, that part didn't match up, but they, the, the sheriff's office uh, failed to preserve the evidence correctly. They didn't photograph it correctly. They didn't document it uh, uh, correctly. And so there was few conclusions that you could arrive, but the fact that the shoe impressions were similar to something he used to have and the bike tire impressions were something mm-hmm. similar to something he did have, uh, certainly uh, the prosecution's perspective on that was basically, what are the odds? So uh, did and, um, and so that was uh, largely, and he put himself near the crime scene about a mile away. He said that oh. he had been mountain biking during that time period and had his cell phone shut off. So his cell phone was off for two hours before and two hours after the homicide. Hmm. And when he was originally brought in for questioning, which I guess was immediately, right? That night, yes. Yeah, that's pretty immediate. Um, did they do a search warrant on his house? Did they do anything like they did. that? They did. They did right uh, away. Yeah, he, uh, he showed up at the scene uh, because... Uh, um, the victim, uh, Carol, was actually, a, it appears she was attacked uh, while she was on the phone talking to her mother, her elderly mother, who was in Tennessee. And so uh, the, the mother called the sheriff's office to ask somebody to go check because she, according to the 911 call, when she, uh, she said she was talking to Carol, and Carol suddenly screamed and said, oh, no, and the phone went dead. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty awful. And so she contacted not only the sheriff's office, but attempted to contact Steve. She had no suspicion of Steve being involved. 
uh, in any way. She didn't even know what was happening. So uh, based on that phone call, and uh, uh, Steve and his daughter um, decided they needed to go out and check and see what was going on, and they arrived after the law enforcement was there. And uh, and they, of course, uh, were both the daughter and him were immediately started being questioned and taken down to the sheriff's office that night. And while he was there, they got a search warrant and ex- and executed that about dawn the next morning. So he never had an opportunity to go back home, frankly. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and, and they they seized all his clothes. I mean, they took the drains off of his uh, washer and dryer because his bike clothes were in there. Uh, things like that. So they they swabbed it. Now, one of the big issues in the first case was that uh, under the fingernails of the victim's left hand, they found a complete DNA profile. Uh, All loci, there was a a, a magnificent amount of of cellular material under her fingernail uh, that they uh, were unable uh, to identify. They had a complete okay. profile, but they ran it through all the you know CODIS databases, and and they started swabbing everybody they could think of that had any connection to this case whatsoever, and never could um, come up with that. Uh, they were so convinced that our guy was the killer that they their position at trial was it must be an accident, it must be yeah. a fluke. Yeah, hold that okay. thought, Rich. Sure. We need to take another break. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Okay, Rich, you were just saying that they found a complete DNA profile on under her fingernails on her on her right hand? 
Left hand, yep. Left hand. And, 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 the, and it certainly, all, by all appearances, would suggest that it was somebody that she may have scratched during the attack. But the, uh, the state's position was that our guy was the killer, and it wasn't his DNA. Uh, therefore, it must have been, there must be some other explanation. And, <laughs> but they didn't know what that explanation was. They didn't know who it was. It was evidence item 603 in the sheriff's office logs. So we started referring to it as Mr. 603. Okay. And, and during the first trial, we, we kept saying, you know, Mr. 603, you know, what about Mr. 603? And, uh, and so we never really got to totally litigate that uh, by the time the, the first trial ended in the mistrial. So during the year, two-year gap, roughly, uh, between the mistrial and the second trial, the sheriff's office finally figured out who Mr. 603 was. And he was an elderly guy uh, who lived near um, about five or eight miles away from the crime scene in another part of uh, Yavapai County. Uh, he had uh, serious health issues, had had heart surgery, and his surgical uh, uh, sutures uh, had ruptured inside of his chest, and he bled out and, and passed away and was found. His body was found in his house the same morning, uh, uh, the morning after Carol's uh, death. So he wound up at the medical examiner's office. The autopsy on him was performed an hour and a half before the autopsy on Carol Kennedy was performed. Somehow, his blood or cellular DNA from a prior autopsy wound up under the fingernails of Carol Kennedy. Now, how did that happen is still unresolved, and in the mind of the defense, it raises all kinds of questions about the uh, the validity of any kind of. How much confidence can you have in the mm-hmm. evidence gathering process mm-hmm. if you have that mm-hmm. kind of cross communication, uh, cross contamination? Right. You have that if it's they collect all kinds of trace evidence during autopsies, and to have the uh, blood or cellular material from one autopsy wind up under the fingernail under the fingernails of the other victim. Uh, during questioning, the medical examiner said, "Well, maybe we're you know when I took her out of the body bag, maybe her hand kind of scraped across <laughs> my, my apron." And I, and oh I my said, goodness. "You didn't change aprons between autopsies." Yeah, they couldn't yeah. remember. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. You have to, to criminally prosecute somebody. It just seems like you have to be, uh, you can't be that careless with handling evidence and documenting evidence. It's just, it's just mind-boggling to me. It is, it is mind-boggling. And the other thing that, that I thought was very significant is that the alternate suspect, that we call the third-party, right. uh, third-party suspect, was lived on the property and was actually allowed by the deputy back in while it was still a contained crime scene? Well, uh, not while it was a contained crime scene. He was escorted into his part of it. He lived in a detached guest house, uh, and uh, he was that night escorted back into the property to get his uh, medications he said he needed because the whole place had been secured, and and so he was escorted in to, to get his medications. He said he needed it because he had cancer. And uh, that turned out to not be true. He did not have cancer, okay. and the medication was not for cancer. 
but re- regardless, they, they still believed him. But they did release the crime scene early. Uh, they, the, they released it the next day, uh, and, and he was allowed back in, and he started uh, kind of maneuvering and finding things and stuff like that. So he called him, and they sort of re-secured the crime scene two days later uh, and, and gathered more evidence. Uh, and then released it again, and then came back another two days after that and and did it again. And they kept coming back and gathering more evidence while this guy had access to it, while lots of people had access to it, frankly. And uh, it became an issue because uh, one of the uh, pieces of evidence that was found uh, that was secured was a magazine that had some papers inside. They were financial papers that uh, Carol Kennedy had obviously produced on her computer that she had written on there, this today is July 2nd, which is mm-hmm. the day she died. And uh, and the printout dates, you know, you get the little folio lines down at the bottom of the paper when you print it out, had that same date in the evening. So these papers were printed out shortly before she was murdered. Hmm. Those papers contained fingerprints of that guest house occupant. Now, Amazing. Because they failed to gather that evidence at the first time they were there, that gave them the opportunity to say, well, he put them on, he, he touched those documents mm-hmm. after we left. Yeah. So, so, so now, you know, the, this, our defendant winds up being, uh, the state, frankly, gets to benefit from their own carelessness mm-hmm. by, uh, so we, we we have this unknown situation now. When were those fingerprints put on there? Because that could be really important. If he was in that house that night and touched those documents uh, just before, it would raise questions about his alibi. So and this it was, guy, those kinds of issues were out there. And this guy is now deceased as well, correct? He did. That was the the other weird twist in all this. Uh, the the. The uh, homicide occurred in July of 08. Uh, Steve was arrested in October of 08. And in early, uh, July or January, first week of January of 09, six months after the homicide, uh, this gentleman was found in his new home, uh, shot to death, had a single gunshot wound to his chest. And he was found half in and half out of a closet in his bedroom. Uh, there were... Uh, five other gunshots fired from inside that room uh, that went through walls and ceiling and uh, windows, uh, and there was furniture in disarray. There was uh, drawers pulled open, and and he's found with the weapon nearby and uh, and deceased. And uh, they determined uh, they concluded that this was a suicide. Oh, really? No, no, no note. Uh-huh. Um, no, it's how much in, like a suicide? <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, you know the at, in testimony at the second trial, the detective uh, indicated that he thought that this was a suicide staged by the victim to appear to be a homicide. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, and and then I thought it was interesting that the deputy that had allowed him or escorted him into the, his house when, when the other deputy was questioned about it, that he had been terminated for something, for some other misconduct area. Right. 
Yeah, that uh, that deputy. Um, there was a group of uh, uh, sheriff deputies, a lot a group of law enforcement uh, that had this biker group, uh, a club they called the Iron Brotherhood, got into a big bar fight uh, in Prescott uh, <laughs> a couple of years later, and and uh, and then tried to cover it up. And he was uh, one of them that uh, was lost his job over that situation, and and uh, it was. Yeah, like you say, completely unrelated, but uh, did cast some doubt because the question, the allegation was that he had uh, misled other investigators who were looking into that bar fight. And so, if you, you, know, you have a law enforcement officer whose credibility is in question, then yeah. it questions everything else. And all this happened just before the second trial. Prescott really is the Wild West, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, there are a <laughs> lot of great folks up there. I, I enjoyed the community. Uh, um, you know, I. I was living up there for long enough to uh, seem like uh, to become a legal resident, but uh, I really like the community and really like town. But boy, it, they need to do some improvements, uh, and and that's true across the country. I'm telling you, this you get into, and you've seen it, Francie. I mean, you know that uh, there's just this is a pervasive problem. You've got tunnel vision issues. Uh, and uh, failure to preserve and collect evidence. These are the kinds of things that lead to wrongful convictions. Uh, yeah. the, years later, that uh, new evidence comes up, and, and you, you have to say, how could a jury have been persuaded in the first one? Well, you know, a lot of times it just has to do with bad police work. Well, it's true, and, and it's really unfortunate because um, there's so much riding on solving a case right. and getting a conviction for a prosecutor. And it's not malicious either, and, and I, I hold nothing against any of the deputies and, and investigators who worked on, on this case. Uh, they seem like uh, good, honest, uh, well-meaning folks, but it's a, it's a uh, human nature uh, situation. When you... When you decide something, it's confirmatory bias is the, is the phrase, but if uh, what happens is these police officers look at somebody and they say, I've decided that guy is my suspect, mm-hmm. and you start looking for all the information that will support your theory, and, it, and, and you, as a result, you wind up excluding all the information that is contradictory to your theory, mm-hmm. you look at that as being completely irrelevant. Right. And and that's what I think happens so many times is evidence is overlooked, ignored, uh, never collected, lost sometimes to all time uh, because it didn't fit the original theory, and uh, that is devastating. I was just trying, you know, and as I was reviewing this case, Rich, I was trying to put myself in your shoes. You must have just been felt like every time you turned around, somebody hits you alongside the head. It kept changing, yeah. It, yeah. It, was, it was not a straightforward case, and it was evolving as we were uh, defending it, and, and, and there were so many issues. It was just, uh, it was just a marathon foot race uh, all the time, it seemed like, and, and, uh, and things just kind of kept happening, just bizarre little things. Even the, uh, the state financial uh, theory that he had a motive, uh, it was a financial motive, and so they had a, a state police uh, expert who did a forensic accountant uh, analysis, and he mm-hmm. testified at the grand jury, and he testified in the first trial, and, and all this kind of stuff. And then, lo and behold, we discovered just before the second trial that he w- had 
lied about his credentials. And <laughs> and he wound up getting fired and 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 indicted oh. for fraud. Oh so my here goodness. here was the the their their fraud investigator was indicted for fraud. <laughs> And well, so they he was had well to quickly, qualified. you know, they had to quickly bring a new person in and, <laughs> and have that person start over again and not provide him with any of the original information so there was no taint and blah, blah, blah. And it was just, uh, it, it seemed every time we turned around, there was some crazy thing like that happening. You can't make this up. You just no. can't make this up. We no. need to take another break. Right. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Arizona investigator Rich Robertson is here with me to discuss investigating high-profile cases. And we got so involved in the details of the case, we haven't spent a lot of time on talking about handling high-profile cases. So, Rich, what would you recommend to people that get involved in a case like this and how they handle the media and what, what is going on behind, around them? Right. Yeah, the, the media does, uh, just the very presence of it has, uh, has an influence on, on the case. Uh, just, just their being there uh, does definitely influence the case, regardless of whether there's cameras in the courtroom or not, just their, their publication of stories every day, things like that. Uh, we had a high-profile case here in Arizona not too long ago called the Jody Arias case. Uh, there was a prime example that became a the trial became a circus, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and because of the presence of the media. Um, but that said, I you know having been in the media for thirty, I've been on both sides of this now, and uh, and. I think the main message to people involved in it from the defense side of it is that they really shouldn't be afraid 
of the presence of the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, uh, you have to keep focused on your client's case, what's in your client's best interest. Uh, and certainly the media has a different interest than what you do. And I've sat across the table over drinks with producers and had uh, long talks with what their goals were and, and ex- trying to explain to them what our goals were and why the only audience that we really care about uh, during the pendency of the trial is 12 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not the 12 million that are out there that they want to do. They say, you know, we want to tell your client's story so that, you know, the people understand. Well, the only people we need to understand uh, is is those 12 people, and we've got to stay focused on that. And uh, those stories that they do can have, they come back into the trial. You never know what somebody's going to say that winds up being twisted around or mm-hmm. or any number of things. And so... Uh, part of my goal, and, and because of my background in the media, I was allowed to, by the attorneys, to sort of be the uh, the middle person between us and them. And at least they had the confidence in me to to know that I wasn't going to do anything or say anything right, that was right. going to to cause a problem. Uh, so, uh, but my goal was really to educate uh, the, the media. It wasn't to uh, to persuade them or anything, but it was, say, here's the process, here's what's happening now, here's the context of what's happening, here's, uh, if, if you have any questions about why that evidence, why that statement, here's the understanding of it, here's some documents, here's some pleadings, here's, you know, I'd encourage you to look at these public records, that kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. to, to help them do a better job uh, of, of covering it. And, that was fairly successful. I, uh, I wasn't giving quotes. Uh, it was just uh, being available to help them do a better job. And I know as a, yeah. as a reporter, you know, your job is to, uh, well, you know, when I, you take creative writing classes in college, they tell you to, uh, to write creatively. You should, t- you should tap in and write about things that you know about. Well, the job of a reporter is to parachute in and write about things they know nothing about. Right. And, and so uh, it is to the advantage of the people being covered to help them uh, be, become educated. And they'll, they'll, ultimately, the stories will, will be better and more balanced and fair and, and everything else to the benefit of, of the client, I think, and, the, and certainly the, the, the public. They really, we were getting a lot of pressure. There's a lot of competition between these news magazines, and they were uh, putting pressure on us to give them exclusives, and you know we're better than they are, and all that kind of stuff. And and but what they really wanted was access to our client, to our to their family, all that kind of stuff. Uh, As the trial was going on, they wanted to be able to interview these people, including our our client. Well, you can't do that. I mean. Mm-hmm. If you've got a client that's standing on his Fifth Amendment rights not to talk about stuff, you can't just be selective about who you're going to talk to. Yeah. And uh, you give them access, and, and you never know what outtakes are going to wind up being forced to come into court. And and so we just didn't do that. We just said, look, you can't. We're not going to do that. And so at the end of several years of, of litigation, none of these news magazines had a single bit of video other than the trial itself. 
And so they took a chance on us uh, in, in being willing to talk about things after the case was over. And, uh, but we made it clear to them that we weren't going to talk to them about it while the case was underway, or at least not do interviews. So I think that's the middle ground. I, there's a, a, I encounter attorneys a lot who kind of take this absolutist position that they won't even smile at these people in the courtroom, mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that this is just dangerous as hell to have any contact with reporters. Uh, I think that's wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, you can go to the other extreme, and I've seen uh, attorneys and stuff grant complete access to mm-hmm. one TV network and let them follow them, uh, follow them in the cars and go to jails with the client and everything else. Uh, I think that's fraught with danger as well. So there is a, there is a place somewhere in between that is beneficial uh, to society uh, uh, to understand the criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, and understand this particular case uh, without jeopardizing your client's uh, rights, which is the paramount concern of the defense team. Well, absolutely, because no matter how many times you tell a juror not to read the papers, not to <laughs> listen to the TV, I don't know how you avoid it. Yeah, frankly. I mean, in a town like Prescott, where yeah. the the courthouse is right there in the center of town, it's a, just this classic courtyard down there, and all the uh, the businesses and shops and stuff. The jurors go out for lunch, and they walk down the street, and here's the local newspaper in the box with glaring headlines about the case. Yeah. So at yeah. the very least, even you know, they're walking down the street, they're exposed to at least the headline, and God forbid that headline has information or is, uh, some allegation or some detrimental situation that they weren't supposed to see. And no matter how many times you say you can be objective, there's no way when you, right. you're influenced like that. There's That's just right. no and, way. And uh, I know in the Arias case, I was talking to a couple of the jurors after that and, and, and asking them about their awareness of the media coverage uh, uh, during the trial. And, and they were telling me that in the, in the jury room, they were standing there uh, looking out the window of the jury room right down into the area where all of the live trucks from CNN and everybody <laughs> else were set up. They were yeah. watching the TV anchors doing stories about the case that they were the jurors on. Now, yeah. they couldn't hear them, but they yeah. knew that. And you have to wonder what kind of pressures are on them knowing full well yeah. that uh, the, the jurors in, in uh, the uh, O.J. Simpson were... You know, threatened with death because they got the verdict wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's that kind of stuff. You just uh, you don't know what goes on in the minds of jurors and 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 how that can influence them. Yeah. Well, I think it's really good advice what you said about uh, at, if you have an opportunity to talk to the people that are that are covering it to you know maybe explain the system to them. Um, you know, let them know that they're not getting every, you know they're not hearing everything that there's available. Uh, you know, all those kind of things. That, that's a good education process. And, and the other thing that I think people have to keep in mind is that the, the nature of what constitutes the media is changing. Uh, and you've got people that just show up. We had a group of uh, women that called themselves the courtroom divas. Oh, no. <laughs> and they were, uh, they had created their own blog, and they were just moving from one salacious case to another. And and t- blogging what their thoughts were about it, and I, yeah. you know, they showed up in you know leopards, 
print spandex <laughs> and hair stacked on stiletto heels and you know, walk in the courtroom like this, and they are self-appointed journalists. They have exactly oh the same First Amendment constitutional protections right. as, as the New York Times. They, there is no difference. Uh, you know, and, Rich, uh, and you yet know, their, I'm, I'm, their stuff is I'm just sorry. awful. I'm, I'm just getting uh, noticed that we've got to go. We've got to go now. Darn. We're out of time. And I thank you so much for being on the show. This is fascinating. So thank listeners, you. tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. We'll get Rich back on another time. It's the Eyes <laughs> Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Rich. You bet. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce...